Hey, podcast listeners, thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you would please give me a review of my podcast, uh, give me some constructive criticism on how I can make the show better. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. Everything you can do to help me make this a better podcast goes a long way in actually helping me do so. Thank you, everybody. Sweeps out in California already. Welcome everybody to the Gold Call, a Stanley Cup Playoffs podcast. I am your host, Nathaniel Marlowe. We have uh, two teams that are already moving on to round two and two teams that have already been eliminated. Those teams that have been eliminated are the Anaheim Ducks and the Los Angeles Kings. Then teams moving on, San Jose Sharks and the historic Vegas Golden Knights. And their inaugural season, first team to do so to make it to the playoffs their inaugural season, and not only that, but to win a playoff series, move on to round two, and then the first team ever to beat the Los Angeles Kings four games in a row in the Stanley Cup playoffs at any point. When you take a look at the series between the Vegas Golden Knights and the Los Angeles Kings, both of their strongest assets, the Knights, outside of William Carlson, their strongest asset has been Marc-Andre Fleury, and the Kings... Their strongest asset has also been their goaltender, Jonathan Quick. So this, all throughout, was truly a battle of the goaltenders. Jonathan Quick, probably the most successful, I know, not probably, he is the most successful losing starting goaltender in playoff history. He, his numbers don't even come close. And like other losing goaltenders, even other winning goaltenders, among the likes of uh, Patrick Wad, just to name one person, one goaltender, it, Jonathan Quick's numbers are just absolutely incredible. So the four games played, Quick only allowed seven goals. His, he stopped 124 out of a possible 131 shots. Uh, his save percentage was a .947. His average for other playoff series is a .922. Absolutely incredible. His goals allowed average was a 1.55. He was ready to play some playoff hockey, and it was evident that everyone that's around him was not ready to play some playoff hockey. Surprising considering how he's playing with the likes of uh, Stanley Cup winners like Dustin Brown, Anze Kopitar, Drew Doughty. Tyler Toffoli, just to name a few. So they know how to win, but they were focused too much on the end game as, a pl- as opposed to uh, taking the necessary steps to get there. The Kings knew they had a red-hot goaltender, relied on him too much, and were not focused on them having to stop another red-hot goaltender, Marc-Andre Fleury. Fleury's stats are even more ridiculous than Jonathan Quitts. Take a look at a uh, Listen to this. So... Marc-Andre Fleury, he only allowed three goals. Three goals that entire series. So three goals out of four games, naturally, incredibly impressive. He stopped 127 shots out of 130 for a .977 save percentage. His average during the playoffs is a .911. Unbelievable series for Marc-Andre Fleury. His goals allowed average. Now, originally, I had this as higher when I did the original math, but my math was wrong here. I had him as having a 
7-0, goals allowed average. <laughs> he was really a .65. A .65. Now, take a look at his first year in the NHL playoffs, the 2006-2007 season. A 3.76 goals allowed average. Second season, did a lot better, 1.97. Take a look at his 2011-2012 uh, season. Not necessarily a great year for him in the playoffs. Uh, 4.63 goals allowed average. Stanley Cup run during the 2015-2016 playoffs, 3.04. The last playoff run he had out of 15 games, uh, 2.56 goals allowed average. And you know what? That first series he had, that's not a, the first Stanley Cup run. Not the first. The second Stanley Cup run he had in the 2015-2016 season. That's not a fair assessment because he only played two games during that series. Uh, but last year, out of 15 uh, playoff games played, he had a 2.56 goals allowed average. Right now, out of round one, he has a .65. Unbelievable. And he's an aging goaltender, too. He was born in 1984. He's 33 right now. He's... He's like a fine wine. He's an aging goaltender, and he just gets better and better at stealing games for the Knights. Yeah, there are some nights that he's been terrible in the regular season, but there are some uh, some nights, ah, pun right there, uh, some nights that he has stolen games for them, and he stole this series for them. He was the star of the Vegas Golden Knights throughout this entire series. Every game, I had him as the number one star. Every game. And he was just juggling that puck, saving it like crazy, making making it look easy. Goaltenders are going to look at him uh, like once after he retires. Current goaltenders and future NHL goaltenders are going to look at him and continue to say, as if they're not already saying it now, how can I model my game after him? What can I do that he did to make me a better goaltender? Very few of the Los Angeles Kings were putting pressure on him. And not that they're a bad hockey team at all. I mean, they've won two Stanley Cup championships within three years. And they have quite a few of them from those seasons. So yes, naturally, they have a lot of skilled players. But the aging players on their team, they're not necessarily fit for the new NHL. I mean, Drew Doughty is 28. Kopitar is 30. Jeff Carter is 33. Dustin Brown is 33. Jake Muzzin is 29. Jake Muzzin was absolutely invisible out in that ice. I didn't even, it, it was like, I didn't even realize he was playing any hockey at all. I didn't hear his name at all. And yeah, he was recovering from an injury for two of those games, so he was out. But during the playoffs, you should pursue more. Nick Benino, former Pittsburgh Penguin, was playing with a broken foot. And still helped his team win the Stanley Cup. And it's not any one person's fault uh, that they weren't succeeding. They were certainly trying, but they weren't putting nearly enough pressure on Marc-Andre Fleury and the rest of the Knights that they should have been putting on him. Fleury has been shaky the past couple years, but I think with playing for the Vegas Golden Knights now, he is just full of confidence, and he's able to stop almost everything that comes his way. And you're not just seeing that on paper. You're seeing that on how he makes glove saves. You're seeing it at how he moves around in the crease. You're seeing it as he's stopping shots with the pads. The way he has been able to read the puck throughout this series. Significant improvement from last season. 
Uh, last season, when I watched him uh, play, especially in the playoffs, it seemed like he wasn't able to uh, to read the puck very well at all. It didn't seem like he knew uh, where they were going to shoot it from, where they were going to pass it. And this season, he's been absolutely incredible. Jonathan Quick was also incredible, but the Vegas Golden Knights knew that any mistake that Quick was going to make, they had to take advantage of. In Game 3, he was way too far out of the crease. Cody Eakin recognizes this. He shoots it on Quick. Puck finds its way back to Ryan Carpenter. Carpenter passes it over to Eakin. Eakin one-times it in. Eakin was able to recognize Quick's mistake, got a good read on it, and took advantage of it. That is what the Los Angeles Kings did not do throughout this series. Take advantage of Marc-Andre Fleury's mistakes. Yep, it's Fleury. You weren't going to get a whole lot of them. But the Knights knew that you weren't going to get a whole lot of mistakes out of Jonathan Quick. So when they put the pressure on him, they put the pressure on. And they ended up winning the series uh, as a result. And yes, it was a low-scoring series. And the Vegas Golden Knights will be tested as they face the San Jose Sharks in round two. But they have a lot of great things going their way for round two. They have the momentum from the series sweep against the Kings. They have home ice advantage starting off. That, and they're not facing a red-hot goaltender like Jonathan Quick. They're facing Martin Jones, who's been great, but he's not at that Jonathan Quick, Marc-Andre Fleury, Stanley Cup goaltending level, at least not yet. Perhaps this will be Martin Jones's year, and he might shut down the Vegas Golden Knights. But the Sharks also have to stop up their offensive game if they want to get past the puck behind Marc-Andre Fleury. So, let's take a look and deep dive into the series between the San Jose Sharks and the Anaheim Ducks. Sharks absolutely swept Anaheim. Duck hunt. That was the major theme the San Jose Sharks were going for, dating back to the old uh, to the old NES game. And they had their uh, their rally towels as a uh, duck hunt with their uh, <laughs> with uh, with the San Jose Shark mascot uh, holding up the duck like the dog from uh, Duck Hunt did. Absolutely incredible series for the Sharks. Uh, terrible, terrible series for. Anaheim. I had the Sharks uh, winning the series, but I did not see a sweep going for them at all. I thought it was going to be more so a tight-knit series, uh, especially in terms of goal scoring, much how uh, Los Angeles and Vegas were. Then again, I didn't have Vegas sweeping them either. I had that also as a tight-knit series in terms of game-wise, but in terms of game play on the ice, that was a tight-knit series. San Jose and Anaheim, not really tight-knit at all. Where Vegas struggled to win their series... San Jose was kind of the opposite. It was just all San Jose. And what a job Evander Kane has done on that ice. That has probably been the best acquisition San Jose has made in a long time. San Jose knew they were getting a guy who was hungry to get into the playoffs. This is his first playoff series ever. In the almost 10 years since he's been in the NHL. Starting off with Atlanta. Then uh, once they relocated over to Winnipeg. And over to Buffalo, over that course of uh, the past nine years, this is a Vander Kane's very first playoff series, and he's been having a heck of a time. Out of four games played, he's scored three goals, one assist for a total of four points, uh, 21 shots on goal, not many turnovers, uh, spent, spent an average of 18 minutes and 18 seconds on that ice. He loves, uh, he loves playoff hockey, let's say that much. The Anaheim Ducks, though? They look scared. Like, they all seemed rattled throughout that series. I mean, Corey Perry, like, he, he, every time he stepped out on that ice, every, and every time, like, the smallest thing happened, like, he just looked terrified. 
Getzlaff seemed really rattled, almost like he was scared to go on that ice. Uh, Ryan Kessler, before stepping out on the ice in Game Four, like he he looked petrified in some of the shots, uh, some of the pregame shots. Th- these were not the Anaheim Ducks people were used to seeing. And Getzlaff and Perry are Stanley Cup champions. Like they they seem to know how to win, but I don't think they know how to win now in the new NHL, especially when they were facing a red-hot San Jose Sharks team that just acquired Evander Kane. And they were actually playing a lot better hockey in a game four of the series. It was just a lot of bad luck that went their way. They had a goal disallowed because it went in the back of the net after the clock hit zero. They had a goal, but it was challenged offside, and it was indeed way offside, so that goal was disallowed. They tied it back up, but San Jose, they were uh, they were fighting back, and they got the game winner. <laughs> Sweeping the Ducks in a 4-0 series. <laughs> the Sharks just absolutely dummied the Ducks. Especially in a Game 3 where the Sharks won 8-1. In terms of uh, all four games, the San Jose Sharks, they outscored the Ducks 16-4. So every time Anaheim scored a goal, San Jose on average scored 4. I could totally see how Vegas defeated Los Angeles because Los Angeles had a lot of defensive game, not a whole lot on offense, and that's where Vegas uh, took advantage of them, just holding down their weak offense. But uh, I don't see how Vegas can take on San Jose, like maybe winning one or two games. But I see San Jose being the better of two teams in this series. Vegas has the better goaltender. I mean, between Marc-Andre Fleury and Martin Jones, I mean, I see Marc-Andre Fleury uh, holding down the San Jose Sharks' offense better than Martin Jones can handle uh, Vegas's offense. But but San Jose was just so offensively dominant against the Ducks. I think they're going to squeak out this series uh, for round two. I think they're going to be the ones to move on to round number three. All right, time to move on to our next segment, three stars and three duds. And uh, the stars and duds will be between the series of uh, the San Jose Sharks and the Anaheim Ducks and the series between the Vegas Golden Knights and the Los Angeles Kings. So let's start off with our three stars. Uh, the number three star goes to Jonathan Quick of the Los Angeles Kings. He was uh, outstanding. And yeah, his team got swept, but he he had an absolute uh, near near perfect performance. Uh, you can't blame any of the losses on him because he did everything he could to keep his team alive. Uh, fantastic job by Jonathan Quick. Number two star goes out to Evander Kane of the San Jose Sharks. He opened up the scoring for them in game number one. Got two goals in that game for uh, four points overall, giving his team the momentum to help sweep the Anaheim Ducks. Number one star, Marc-Andre Fleury of the Vegas Golden Knights. The only other thing I can say about him that I haven't already said is that he probably could have been the only player out in that ice, and he still would have found a way to win that series. Uh, congratulations to all the three stars, Jonathan Quick, Commander Kane, and especially Mark andre Fleury. We will see Kane and Fleury face each other <laughs> in a few ways in round number two. Three duds of the series. My number three dud... Goes out to the captain of the Los Angeles Kings, Andre Kopitar. And it pains me to say that because he's one of my favorite players to watch. He's a Selkie finalist this year. Uh, you wouldn't expect that, though, uh, considering with how he played and how uh, he rallied his team or, you know, lack of rally of team. Uh, he just didn't show up. And he's the captain. 
he uh, didn't rally his team together. He's the captain. Your role as the captain is to not only lead your team by example, but to rally them up, get their offense going. And yeah, they were great defensively for the most part, but they didn't produce anything on the offensive end. So uh, that's why it goes out to the leader on the ice. I would do it to the coach and uh, you know the front office, but my three stars and three duds, uh, I'm solely making it for the players, and I got to point out to the leader of the players, Andre Kopitar. So he's my third dud of the week. Number two dud goes out to the captain of the Anaheim Ducks, Ryan Getzlaff. Again, didn't rally his team, and they lost on home ice for game one. And it was just slowly but surely all downhill from there. And uh, Kopitar at least looked ready to play. Getzlaff looked terrified out there. Um, Didn't rally his team. There was no offensive effort. Uh, It didn't show up until game four. Absolute terrible hockey. Uh, offensively and defensively. Uh, and that's why I'm looking at you, Ryan Getzlaff. Number one dud goes out to Corey Perry. So when they had good chances, Corey Perry just absolutely ruined it, taking stupid penalties left and right. Uh, they could have won it in game two. They were only down by a goal, but Corey Perry takes a stupid penalty and it seals the deal for the San Jose Sharks. That and Corey Perry, he looked absolutely terrified. And he's known as being a pest out in the ice. He's known as being like kind of a dirty player. And that's just not the Corey Perry uh, people are used to seeing. I'm pretty sure most hockey fans, like especially those uh, uh, who despise the Anaheim Ducks, were thrilled about seeing Corey Perry terrified throughout the series. But uh, he was just not ready to play. <laughs> in my opinion, he was the worst player out in that ice, and the number one dud of that series, and uh, number one dud in the Pacific Division uh, playoff series this year. That's why he gets my number one dud for this episode. Honorable mention, Drew Doughty for that one-game suspension he had uh, not being there for the guys in game number two, uh, resulting in a loss for the Los Angeles Kings. We have three teams Facing elimination tonight, Philadelphia Flyers, Colorado Avalanche, and the Minnesota Wild all had the chance to get eliminated from the 2018 playoffs tonight, uh, so long as the Pittsburgh Penguins defeat the Flyers, the Nashville Predators defeat the Avalanche, and the Winnipeg Jets defeats the Minnesota Wild. What surprises me the most is that uh, the Minnesota Wild and the Colorado Avalanche even though they've been losing, they were they've been ready to play some playoff hockey. They're just uh, they're just getting roasted by better teams, and they're playing the best they can. But you know, in playoff hockey, made the best team win. Uh, the Philadelphia Flyers, they have had their chances, but they lose momentum left and right. And I think part of it has to do with their home ice. Now, a lot of people have been saying that home ice doesn't mean anything anymore during the regular season, and especially during the playoffs. I think it means something, but not necessarily what people were thinking. I believe in home ice disadvantage now, especially in the case of the Philadelphia Flyers. They've been the only team that this season that have been doing better on the road than they were at home ice, or at least in the middle of the season. That's what the the stats reflected. They did get a, a winning record on their home ice 
and they uh, eventually did do better at home than they did on the road. But for the most of the regular season, they were doing a lot better, considerably better on the road than they were in their own building. And especially in this playoff run, uh, every game they've had against the Penguins in the regular season in their own building, they've gotten roasted by them. And what, whenever they played the Pittsburgh Penguins on uh, in Pittsburgh at PPG Paints Arena, they lost uh, every game with the exception of uh, game two of the playoff series this year. But those games have been much closer, much more tight-knit. Every game in Philadelphia, Philadelphia Flyers have just been getting absolutely roasted by the Penguins. First game of the regular season, 5-1. Second game of the regular season, 5-2. First playoff game, 5-1. Second playoff game, 5-0. And the Flyers are making, or not so much uh, the players, but the front office, Ron Hextall and Dave Hextall, they're making the mistake of scratching the only player that has produced a goal. For the Philadelphia Flyers in the past two games, they're scratching Travis Sanheim for tonight's game against the Pittsburgh Penguins. They're replacing him with Robert Hag tonight, which is great because Hag, for most of the season this year, has led the uh, the NHL in hits and until until he got injured. But I don't understand why they're not scratching one of their veterans who have been playing poorly lately. They... Hextall and Hackstall rely on the Gudis Manning pairing. For whatever reason they love it, even though they've been struggling all season. They in their def- they've been saying that in their defense that they've uh they've been a solid pair all year. They've not been a solid pair all year. I liked uh, the Gudis Sanheim pairing a lot better because Gudis held back the defensive end and Sanheim was producing a lot of offensive opportunities. And Manning, uh when he's playing in, as an individual, uh he's able to produce goals occasionally. But when he's playing as a, quote, team member, he doesn't really produce a whole lot at all on the offensive or defensive end. Um, I find him to be a selfish player in the sense that it seems to be about him as opposed to as the Flyers organization itself. He doesn't really know how to play as a team player. uh, And that's been hurting them all season and it's been hurting them in the playoffs. And the Flyers' struggles um, this playoff series is not any one person's fault. They're all doing a bad job. With the exception of uh, game two of the series, they've been getting absolutely smoked by the Penguins. First game, 7-0. Second game, the Flyers actually won that uh, 4-1. to Third game of the series, 5-1. to And second game, 5-0. They're getting roasted, especially in their own building. That is completely unacceptable by any NHL team standards. And they're, quote, upgrading the Wells Fargo Center over the summer, doing they're doing renovations to like the concourse and the mezzanine, like putting uh like a restaurant out up there or something like that. And let me tell you, I've been to many a game this season, probably a dozen games total. They need to do something to that building, but it's not renovations. I will say that much. What they need to do is to do something to get the crowd going, because that is a quiet venue. Compared to the other teams in the NHL. I went to game three of the series. The first uh, Flyers uh, home playoff game this season. And before it was loud. But it got real quiet once Crosby scored that first goal. Even when they were only down one nothing, The building was dead silent at the start of the second period. 
And the Florida Panthers, that building has been empty most of the season. You take a look at any of their games, a lot of those seats are empty. When they were still fighting for a playoff spot, and they were they were getting pretty close too, that building was empty. The fans in that empty building were louder than a packed house at the Wells Fargo Center. And I can say that not only about the Florida Panthers uh, and their fans being louder than the Flyers, I can say that about most teams, if not all teams in the NHL, being louder than the fans inside the Wells Fargo Center. And this is not a knock at Flyers fans at all. I mean, if you follow my Instagram page, you know I am a diehard and very passionate Philadelphia Flyers fan. Anyone who knows me personally knows that I grew up an hour outside of the city all of my life. So naturally, I am a Philadelphia Flyers fan. It's fun watching the Flyers around here. It's fun watching them succeed. Heck, it's fun watching them fail. Like I don't I don't mind if they lose, like even if I like pay a bunch of money to go see them because it's still a great time all around. But not not every Flyers fan thinks that. In fact, I think most Flyers fans think that. I, I talk to a bunch of people, and they are completely frustrated. They've been frustrated for a long time. And I think part of it has something to do with the building they play in, the Wells Fargo Center. There's something about that, that venue that gets fans really quiet really fast. And even when the fans are quote-unquote loud... It's still quiet compared to most other uh, venues and fans in the league. Philadelphia Flyers fans are perhaps the loudest when the Flyers are struggling as opposed to when they are successful. And I don't mean that in a good way. Most Philadelphia Flyers fans are very vocal about the mistakes the Flyers make on the ice as opposed to what they are doing right. Even if they don't make mistakes at all. I mean, you probably say this about... Uh, most fans anyway, but especially about Philadelphia Flyers fans. Like, even if they don't make a mistake, the Flyers fans are very vocal, they're very passionate, and they're very, uh, they're very open about how they feel when they are dissatisfied with the Flyers' performance. Of course, they want to see their team do well, but they, but they hate seeing their team fail, and they've been failing for a very long time. Now, most people I talk to, um, Outside of the ones that I go to Flyers games with, like they're very bandwagon fans. Like they're when they're winning, they're they're all about the Flyers, and when they're losing, like they do nothing but talk about like how much they're a failed organization, uh, how much Hextall should be fired, how much that they should get rid of Ron Hextall, they should get rid of this player, that player, Giroux's the only one uh, producing for the team, yada yada yada, all, all that jazz. But they weren't watching the Flyers the way I was watching the Flyers. Like, I was watching that team play every night. And if I couldn't get to a television to watch it on, I was listening to them on the radio. Most of the fans that uh, outside of the city that I were talking to, they weren't following them the way that me and a lot of other people were following them. So to me, it's clear that part of the problem is that the organization is not doing everything they can to get uh, to get everything out of their fan base. Like, as an organization, whether the Flyers are winning or they're losing, they're not doing enough to entice the fans to come to the games more often. They're not enticing them to get the fans to watch the games on television or listening to them on the radio more often. Now, few teams have venues as loud as Pittsburgh, Nashville, St. Louis, 
But when the Florida Panthers fans are louder than your fans, that poses as a huge problem for your team. I think what most venues do that the that the Wells Fargo Center and the Flyers organization have been struggling to do is that most of the venues, they get the fans going when the team is struggling on the ice. Like the, the Pens, like you take a look at the Flyers-Penguins game when the Flyers were up 4 to nothing and then ended up winning 4-1. to one. They got the fans going when the Penguins were down three goals. And most of the fans still had a great time even though they watched their team lose. Now I went to the Flyers home opener when they won 8-2. A lot of the fans around me were not necessarily having the best time even though they were watching their team dominate. People around me were leaving midway through the second period. So even when the Flyers are winning, they can't entice their fans to stay. Now as a whole, I think the Flyers do a great job at appealing to the diehard fan base. Uh, like most of the fans, like they stay even when they're struggling. They were still able to sell a lot of tickets uh, when they were going through that 10-game losing streak. Where the Flyers have their hugest problem is that even when they're doing well, they're not doing anything they can to attract new fans. They're not doing what they can to bring the old fans back. A lot of the fans were uh, they were bandwagon fans from the 2010 Stanley Cup run. And it's really that diehard fan base that is keeping that team in Philly and keeping uh, the organization alive. But I'm not so sure how much longer like they're going to be there and uh, how much longer, <laughs> meaning they're not going to be there as in like the diehard fans are going to continue like supporting the team even when they're uh they're struggling this much especially against a series where they should be uh threatening the Pittsburgh Penguins a lot more they should be frustrating the Pittsburgh Penguins a lot more and yes Philadelphia is still high off of the Super Bowl champion win and off of the uh Villanova NCAA championship win and uh the Sixers are doing really well right now and the Flyers have had a, re a really good season despite what most people have been saying but right now the Flyers organization needs to do everything they can to make Philadelphia a hockey town once again well I think that'll do it for another episode of the goal call three elimination games tonight Philadelphia Colorado and Minnesota on their last legs tonight we'll see if they can pull it off thanks for listening everybody